turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians If you've not been with us in the last couple of weeks, we've been going through a series of messages on the cross and encouraging you to come to the cross and to see what it has in store for you and your life. And I trust that uh, those of you who've been with us, you can uh, see the blessing of the cross and use it in, as an instrument in our lives. Uh, uh, this morning... <coughs> Uh, when we think about the resurrection, we think about uh, victory, and we think about triumph, triumph over the grave, even as uh, Levi just sang about. Uh, most often, though, as we go to our day-to-day uh, work and business and so forth, we might think of victory or triumph uh, of a ball team uh, or an athletic event, whether either someone being a part of a winning team or spectators of a victory celebration. And no doubt every one of us has had some great experiences like that in our past. Uh, For instance, some may have uh, received an award somewhere along the line. Maybe you were uh, in the top uh, uh, of your class when you graduated. I had a daughter who was in the was top of her class. Of course, there's only two people in her class, uh, and the other fellow was kind of a zero. But anyway, uh, it didn't take much for her to be the top of her class. But uh, uh, so I think she was valedictorian, salutatorian, and uh, student of the year, all wrapped into one. But uh, anyway, we think about re- awards and 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 things like that, and we celebrate those things. Uh, maybe it was uh, being employee of the month, and uh, uh, my son. Oh, hey, I'm talking about my kids now. My son, he was uh, recently uh, uh, the employee of the month, which is not unusual. Not because of necessarily his great uh, skills, which he does have, but he works for a company that's called MyEmployees.com, which is uh, about uh, giving monthly awards to people, and, and he designs some of those awards. Well, uh, he gets to be the employee of the month every so often, so it's become kind of an old hat thing, but we don't celebrate it near as much as we used to, but we're still thankful that he's doing his job anyway. But uh, maybe employee of the month or some special event. Maybe there's uh, someone special that you uh, celebrate with. Maybe, maybe you remember the first time you held your child in your arms. Uh, and uh, for some of us who've had um, more than one child, uh, that's been a, a thrill that we've had often. Um, Sometimes you think the first one was really, really thrilling, and the last one wasn't quite as thrilling, you know, but it was still uh, wonderful, and you still rejoiced in it. But you know, over time, some of these memories, they fade, and uh, maybe uh, it was your wedding day. You know, the day was one of the greatest days of your life. Uh, But over the years, some of the details that weren't saved on film become a little hazy, especially for some of us that have been married for uh, decades, you know, uh, and uh, we, we kind of don't remember everything that happened that day unless someone took a picture of it. Uh, 
And no one had phones that took pictures back in that day. Uh, so we had to hire a photographer uh, to come and take some pictures. And, and a few others might have had one of these little uh, brownie uh cameras, if you know what those mean, uh, are. But uh, we just kind of, some of the details, they fade as time goes by. And I think sometimes our salvation is kind of that way. You know, when we first believed, can you remember that, that day when you trusted Christ as your Savior? You had a great joy and an awe that was like Maybe just like your child was being born, or maybe it was uh, something that just kind of was so great that you couldn't hardly get over it. And you wanted to tell a lot of people about it. But over time, some of the joy and the sense of awe begins to fade. It's not like we no longer appreciate our salvation. It's not like we're not grateful to God, because we are. And we wouldn't trade our standing in Christ for anything in the world, but maybe the glory has dimmed. And that's why I think it's good for us to spend some time looking at some verses here and think of the cross of Jesus Christ this morning and the great victory that came from that great event. You know, it's like looking through a photo album or watching a video of the past. These verses can be a vivid reminder of what our salvation is all about. These words remind us of how we came to believe in Christ. They stir up the embers, so to speak. They fan the flame of devotion anew and cause us to rejoice in the victory. And if you're here this morning without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ... I trust you will see the tremendous triumph that was made available to you by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And I want us to look at the cross as an instrument of triumph this morning. Now, again, just reviewing what we've looked at already, we've seen the cross as an instrument of peace, of power, of shame, of denial, of glory, of sacrifice, Earlier this morning, we talked about it being an instrument of identification. So notice with me the cross as an instrument of triumph. And I want us to see, first of all, the extent of that triumph. The extent of this triumph. Look at me with me at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Now, as you read those words, you say, uh, well, what's that mean for me? You might even say, huh? That's a very deep theological reaction. Uh, what in the world do those two verses do have to do with my life in Christ? Well, notice, first of all, the background. Uh, you know, we're at a disadvantage because maybe we're not aware of the situation that was going on in the church at Colossae. And as you recall, there were false teachers in that city. Uh, they sounded good. They quoted a lot of Bible verses. People were talking about the difference they were that was being made in their lives, but you know, they were leading people away from the truth. They were leading them to depend upon themselves and not on God. 
It appears that one of the things these false teachers were proclaiming was that circumcision was one of those things required before you could be made right with God. Circumcision was that Jewish rite that took place on the eighth day of the, after the birth of a baby boy. And the boy would be circumcised as a visible symbol of that child being a part of God's people, God's community. It was a visible reminder that they were one of God's children. And so significant was this right that when Moses neglected to circumcise his child, God threatened to kill Moses. But that's the background, but notice the point. The false teachers were saying this religious ritual was required for salvation. But Paul, throughout his letters, makes it a point to show that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. He also emphasizes the need of a circumcision of the heart. Paul says this is an internal transformation that's important. Paul then argues that this is something only God can do. Now, if you look at these verses again, and you see some uh, clarifying comments here, here. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And Paul then uses an analogy of baptism to finish his point. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Now, we are made right with God, not by the act of baptism, but by faith in the one who raised Christ from the dead. We are not saved on the basis of an external ritual, but on the basis of who we trust. Now, you can attend church one or two times a year, or you can be here 52 times. It does not have any regard to your salvation. Salvation is not in rituals, but rather in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have people telling us that we need to be circumcised before we can be saved today, but you know, there are a lot of people that try to give us a long list of things to do or become before we can be saved. And some point to good that we must do. Others will point to some habits we have to eliminate. Paul says, however, it's a conversion that starts in the heart. We must be saved before we can be changed and not the other way around. So that's the extent of this triumph. Notice, secondly, the purpose of this triumph. And Paul continues here in verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now notice where we were. And we notice here that Paul says we were dead in our sins. You know, he says the same thing in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2, he says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We were without any spiritual life, and Paul drives home this point, and again, we refer to Romans as we did earlier in uh, our Sunday school hour, uh, to Romans chapter 3, where it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all to become, altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. I wonder if we get the point here. He made it very clear, didn't he? We are not only unable to return to God, we have no desire to turn to God. And it means we are unwilling and unable to do anything to affect our own salvation. You, can't, you cannot buy your salvation. You cannot work for it. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. You see, we're unable to come to Christ unless he first does something in us. And that's why Jesus Christ said when he said what he said, and, and again, Romans chapter 3, he said it to Nicodemus, you must be born again. So that's where we were. <coughs> but notice where we are. And the profound words are these. Hath quit, he quickened together with him. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said the most glorious word in the scripture is the word but. And he refers to this verse in parallel verses in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 and 5 where he says, But God, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherein he loved us even when we were dead in our sins hath quickened us together with Christ. And again, this verse does not say he does not say God helped us to change. He does not say God helped us to do what was right. He does not say God helped me to overcome my weakness. It says God made us alive. He made us alive. Now this understanding of regeneration or quickening was one of the most profound discoveries one can know. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, of course, states this, For by grace are ye saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, he is responsible for our salvation. He alone can make it possible for you and I to be a child of God. And that's the emphasis that Paul gives us. Again, why is this important? Because there is a growing notion in our ego-filled society that we are saved because of what we do, not what Christ does or has done. In other words, we are diminishing the work of grace in our life. Someone put it this way. Think back to your birth. Do you remember that day? I don't. But you, could, you know you were born, right? There was a day when you became you came into this world, or else you wouldn't be here this morning, just in case you had struggling with that concept. But remember that. You remember what they told you, maybe. Whatever it was, when you were born, you had brand new hands, new eyes, a new mouth, no pre-owned parts. Now, who gave you those parts? You know, some of these abortion people should be thinking about this as well. Who gave you those parts? Who gave you the eyes so you could see? Who gave you the hands so you could do the work you do? Who gave you the feet so you could walk and go the places you go? Did you make your eyes? Did you make your own hands, your feet? No, you made nothing. God made everything. He was the one who made you new the first time. 
And he's the one who makes everything new the second time as well. The creator creates again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, the analogy contains another truth. How active were you in the process? Did you place your hands on the top of the womb and shove yourself out? Uh, were you in radio communication with your mother, telling her when to push? Uh, did the doctor ask you to measure the contractions and report on conditions inside the womb? No. You were passive. You were not born because of what you did. Someone else did all the work. Someone else felt all the pain. Your mom did the pushing and the struggling. Your birth was due to someone else's effort. The same is true in your spiritual birth. It's through God's pain that you were born. It's not our struggle. It's God's. It's not our blood that was shed. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, I think, the point that Paul makes here. The false teachers were telling the people, it's all up to them. They wanted them to work harder. They wanted them to run faster. They wanted them to do more. And many tried. And they spent time looking back more than looking forward. And Paul says, you got it all wrong. God is the one who makes the changes. He is the one who brings life. And we need a brand new beginning. And only God can do that. So notice the results of this triumph. And here we come to the cross work of our Lord. Here's where we see the cross as an instrument of triumph. And what wonderful words these are. It says there in in uh, uh, the passage that we looked at, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The key words, the key phrase there is having forgiven. Now notice the scope of this forgiveness. Did you hear the declaration that he made? Having forgiven you all trespasses. How many of your sins? All. Not just the past sins, not just the present sins, not just the big sins, not just the little sins, but all of them. It means those times in your past that plague you with guilt, He forgave you those sins. And those times when you let other people down, when you hurt them, He forgave you of those sins. And all those times you promised, you promised you would do something for the last time, and then you fell again. You know what? He forgave you of all your sins. God forgave those in Christ he forgives the hidden sins and the public sins. Now here's the problem. So many times we think God is like other Christians. You know, he's waiting for you to fail, and then he's never going to let you hear the end of it. Thank God he's not that way. Why would your life be, what would your life be like if you believed that? Well, you'd spend less time regretting the past and more time living in the present. 
Uh, You would be less concerned about keeping people at an arm's distance for fear they would discover the real you or be more willing to be open with those around you. You would justify less and confess more. You would spend less time licking your wounds and more time counting your blessings. You would find it easier to forgive others. And you would love God more. You realize that God is not the kind of God that's going to get into your life and never let you uh, hear the end of your failures. So you see here the scope of forgiveness. Having forgiven all your trespasses. Notice secondly the method of forgiveness. How is it possible? Paul tells us that God blotted out the handwriting of ordinances. In other words, he canceled out the written code that was against us. Now I'm going to use an illustration here, and those of you that own a business, you'll know what I'm talking about here maybe. I hope you never have to go through this, or maybe uh, you've gone through this. I don't know. But uh, think of it as you own a business. You know that income must meet the exceed expenses, and that's the way it works, doesn't it? Right. I thought so. I'm, I just want to make sure I'm on the right track here. But in the debit side of the ledger, it gets too high. And so you're in danger. You could lose your business. You might have to declare bankruptcy. You could lose everything. And let's suppose you're running a $100,000 deficit. You say, did you look at my checkbook? No. We're just using this as an illustration. The creditors, you know, want their money. And everything is sunk into this business. And you're in trouble. But somehow, suppose someone came in and handed you a check for $250,000. And they said it's a gift. What happened to the debt? Wiped out. It was canceled. Now, you'd have $150,000 left to, uh, of working capital, uh, less your tithe to the church, of course. But help, that would help you get the business up and running again. Now, apply this to your spiritual life. All the sins of your life are on the negative side of the balance sheet. There's nothing on the positive side. I said nothing. And when it's totaled up, you see the debt of sin makes the federal deficit look like pocket change. But you're responsible. You've incurred the debt. You deserve the punishment. The law condemns you. But God... But God makes you alive. He pays off the debt. He guarantees you the operating capital. How did he do that? He paid for your sin in Christ's life and death on the cross. It was, a, it was common practice for those uh, who were condemned to die to have their crimes posted over their head. And after the, uh, over the head of Jesus... You can imagine the listing of all your sins and all the sins of all the people in the world. You see, he died in your place. His goodness was applied to your account. Your debt was canceled. Victory. Triumph. Now that's something to celebrate. Now we're not talking about celebration like when the Cubs finally won the World Series. Uh, We're not talking about the hundreds and thousands of people that yelled, Tiger, Tiger, Tiger. We're not talking about that kind of thing. 
We're talking about the greatest victory of all time, the victory over your nature, your sin, and your adversary, the devil. 1 Corinthians 15 and 57 says, But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did God take care of the law, He also took care of those who are eager to accuse us. The powers and the authorities of the world, Satan and his cohorts, are those who are trying to tell us every day, you're not worthy of all of this. And they're quick to say, anyone who loves God would never act the way you do. But you know what? God broke their power. They can talk, but that's all. They have no power over you. You're set free. You can respond to those scoundrels. You were right. Satan, I don't deserve to be called one of God's children. And I'm so glad my hope of eternity is not based on my efforts, but what Christ did for me. Now, let me bring this message to a close. Notice with me the benefits of forgiveness. And of course, one of the greatest benefits of forgiveness we're talking about here today is salvation. You may be here today and would say, I'm not sure my sins have been forgiven. I'm not sure I've trusted Christ as my Savior and Lord. I'm not sure I have a personal relationship with with God. Well, we'd like to invite you to the celebration. But more importantly, God would want to invite you to the celebration. You might say, well, but I think I've been on the wrong team. You know, God's got a new uniform for you. You know what it's like to live with defeat and discouragement, the natural consequences of sin and unbelief? Why not put your faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus, realizing the cross is an is a instrument of triumph? And for believers, we have freedom. I wonder how many of God's people are wallowing around in their sins of the past. You know, God doesn't want that to be the case. God doesn't want you to sit around beating yourself over the head for all the wrong you did in the past. And if you say, but my sins were really, 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 really bad. Well, join the club. You know, the story of this church is not that we're a bunch of perfect people with perfect pasts. We're a story of a bunch of people with rotten past who have a personal relationship with a perfect Savior. And yes, we're trying to grow and we're trying to live now in the way that pleases God. But some people wallow around so much in what they did in the past they can't put the effort into growing today like they should. Freedom is a result of the victory that we have in the cross. Notice there's also confidence. It seems to be characteristic of sports victory celebrations. You know, when people began to voice, bring on the next opponent, we'll take them all on. Well, even those sports celebrations pale in comparison to the great victory uh, of the one at the cross. A benefit of this triumph is developing a confidence in putting off old sinful habits and replacing them with godly ones. And perhaps you should ask it this way. In what does God want me to triumph spiritually? Are you doing or that or are you moping around outside the victory circle? God can give you confidence. And then another benefit would be service. 
You know, each one of us have been entrusted with a gift. We also have been entrusted with opportunities. And one day we'll have to give an account for the way we served and the way we used the gifts and the opportunities that God has given us. Using those gifts with confidence is critical, I believe. Taking on those opportunities with confidence is critical. And I wonder how many of us try to hide our gifts under a bushel basket because we're fearful. Or hide our light under a bushel basket because of fear. So how should we respond to all of this? It's my hope that, again, we've kind of stirred up the wonder and the awe in your heart of being saved or your need to be saved. I hope you have been reminded of the privilege that we have in what it means to be called a child of God. Now, we've mentioned it already a number of times. Worship is a response. Worship is not just the singing of songs. We're worshiping right now. You've heard what God has done for you. How are you going to respond to that? Let me suggest five responses. Number one, gratitude. If we understand what's been given to us, we ought to be grateful to God for the rest of our lives. No matter what life throws us, we'll not complain, but we'll give thanks. We'll be grateful that we have God's strength, God's power, God's provision in our lives. Humility. If we understand the true message of the gospel, there's no room for smugness. There's no room for feelings of superiority. What do you have that you have not been given? What basis for arrogance do you have? You're not a believer because of your goodness, your deeds, or your decisions. You're a believer because God made you alive when you were dead. There ought to be confidence again. We've already mentioned this, but we no longer need to fear in our living. If God be for us, who can be against us? Of course, the answer to that question is there's all kinds of people that can be against us, but the real message is if God is on your side, who can take eternal life from you? No one. And God's Son has set you free. You are free indeed. And then there's holiness. We understand what God has done for us. The natural and appropriate desire would be to honor him in return. We want to live our lives to please Him and, and uh, uh, do all we can to please Him. We know we cannot pay Him back, but we can honor Him with our lives. We can seek to do what He asks and where He leads, and then surrender. Are you trying to run faster, jump higher, push right buttons? Are you trying to stop running? Are you willing to stop running? Start trusting the one who's promised to transform you. Are you willing to accept the free and undeserved riches of his grace? Has he awakened you today? If so, respond in faith. And in the quietness of your heart, even now, you can say, Lord Jesus, I don't know why you love me like you do, but I'm glad you do. And today I confess I cannot save myself and I place my trust completely in Christ's work on my behalf. I'm willing to follow you. Listen, dear Christian friend, do you remember the day you first believed? Do you remember where you were headed and how he changed you completely? Now, have you begun to drift away? Is some of those 
things beginning to fade and the glory beginning to kind of uh, not be so glorious anymore? You know, the question is, are you beginning to try to earn your salvation again? Are you teaching others they need to earn their salvation? Are the feelings of joy and gratitude filling your heart or are they fading? When you begin to get a little fuzzy on the nature of your salvation, my advice is come to the book. Read it again. Remember it anew. Rest in His grace. And see the cross as an instrument of triumph. May God bless us as we seek to honor Him with our lives this day. Let's pray.